0: Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast, and welcome to our new mini-series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini-series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational, and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini-series to be exciting, and informative, And as usual, just like our coronavirus and Hell Week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes.
1: Hi, everybody. JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the Neurosurgery Podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally in particular for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free. Now, let's get started.
0: Well, I am very delighted to welcome to our first episode of Medicine and the Law. And JP and I have been thinking about this mini series for some time now and who the right guest would be. And let me just add that this uh, mini series will be composed mostly of interviews with attorneys. But we wanted to open things up first with an interview with a neurosurgeon. And for that purpose, we wanted to have Jim Harrop on. Jim is the director of spine at the Rothman, I'm sorry, at the Thomas Jefferson School of Medicine. The Rothman Institute is the orthopedic arm of that. It is one of the biggest spine centers and busiest uh, institutions in America. Jim, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks a lot, Mike.
0: Great. So let's kick things off. So this episode is going to be about uh, malpractice. And let me just add that, that most of our episodes on medicine and law will not be about malpractice, even though that's the only thing people mo- most people would think, if you will, about neurosurgeons and the law. So um, in talking about malpractice, of course, the best thing with regards to this is to just avoid getting sued in the first place, right? So Jim, tell us a little about the, the landscape, the epidemiology, if you will, of malpractice and neurosurgeons.
2: So I'm actually going to step back a tiny bit because I we use the word malpractice very frequently. And if you look at most lawsuits, are they really malpractice? And I'd probably argue they're not. And a lot of areas in medicine where we have opportunities or improved where practice wasn't the greatest, most of those don't end up in lawsuits. And so I'm sort of changing the direction of how you're thinking, Mike, and, and trying to ask people, Well, why do people get sued and what can they do to avoid
0: that? Well, I like where you're going with that because you're right, because malpractice is sort of a legal definition and and it could be a medical definition too. So there's getting sued and there's committing malpractice and they're really two separate things, right? So let's take this in the legal realm, right? Because this is about medicine and law and tell us a little bit about doctors getting sued and how that happens and why it happens and all of that. Maybe you can start with that.
2: So, so it's an interesting that is a great question. it's actually it's it's piqued my interest for many years about that. And I've done uh, some medical reviews. I've been in my own cases and and I think really it falls down to a like most things in life where there's a problem, communication. And I think that there's either a there's usually a not a great communication between the patient, the patient's family, and other care providers of what's happening and what's going on.
1: So maybe dig into that a little bit. Um, In your personal experience reviewing cases and talking with other colleagues around the country, is there any particular point in the patient's care path from clinic to hospital back to clinic where you find that these breakdowns in communication typically occur, or is there any typical way in which that occurs?
2: And so, I, again, I'll try to step back a little bit before and go back to human nature. You know, one of the problems with human nature is when there's a problem, our our instinct in a lot of times is to rebel against it or move it away. When you have a complication or an adverse event, your natural event, it is not a good feeling. You hurt, you hurt someone, you did what whatever. Your natural response or a human response is to be like, I want to distance myself away from that feeling or that response. In reality, if you don't want to get sued, you should do the exact opposite. And you should say, you should go to that person who you had the adverse event on, embrace them, be it's our problem. How can we work together to help this problem get solved better? Now, that's probably not going to work in all the cases. But I think most patients don't go, hey, I just had a bad outcome from Dr. Wang. I want to go sue him. That was my monetary value gain for the week. There are people out there that have that gain, but I think most people want to get better. And I think that's what we need to drive forward.
0: So I like how you say that, Jim, because you're absolutely right, right? There have been lots of studies done about... Um, what are the sort of precipitating factors of a lawsuit? And maybe you should go over that. Like, like in other words, what's the playbook of the, of the typical situation where someone is getting sued? What is, what is actually happening in the, in the dynamic with the doctor-patient relationship?
2: So, I mean, I'll say this. There's, there was a study back in, I believe it was New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at lawsuits and they looked at who got sued. It was out of the, if I'm recalling this correctly, it was out of New York State. And when they studied it, they found that if your patient had a lawyer involved in their care before you saw them, you have an eight times more chance, eight times greater chance of being sued. Wow! What does that tell you? It tells you that that patient might be tied up into a monetary driver or goal. And so that's something to be worried about or concerned about if you're, if you're trying to avoid lawsuits. Um, The second Word that I will tell you I hear frequently from patients in other areas when they have a disappointing outcome is they use the word arrogant. And I pause there because we as surgeons are perceived by a lot of people as arrogant. And I believe that's a failure for us to communicate down at the patient's level.
1: Well, that's very fascinating, um, especially for me as someone just coming up in the field to think about how I can guide my own development and my identity as a blossoming neurosurgeon and how I present myself to patients that I meet and interact with and eventually who are my own patients to try to optimize my interaction with them, not only from a perspective of self-protection, but from ensuring they have the best outcomes, even in the event of an adverse event, as you say. Um, So having kind of looked at the landscape of The sequence of events or circumstances that may lead to a lawsuit. Dr. Harrop, how would you describe the scenario once the lawsuit is happening? You're the neurosurgeon involved in the care with this patient. The lawsuit is happening. It's no longer avoidable. What do you think the best playbook is for the surgeon in that scenario?
2: So it's it's a horrible experience, right? Uh, Unfortunately, I should actually take a. We should do a survey on this, Mike. One day, I bet you there's not many neurosurgeons out there that have not been sued. Uh, some of it also reflects on where you where you practice and what is the culture in your environment. So if you're in the Midwest in a small community, you're probably going to do a lot better than if you're in a major little major city. Um, so, with that said, it, it is I think you you're going to get the letter or the, uh, the lawsuit. One of the toughest things to do is read that lawsuit. Um, probably if you get it, I take a day off and, and just absorb the fact that you got sued before I went through the, the paperwork because there's nothing nice. They're going to say about you in that next 30 pages of the complaint.
1: Okay. And, and I should stress, as I asked that question, obviously, Dr. Harrop, you're not a lawyer. We're not giving legal advice on how to handle this scenario. I'm more interested in your perspective as a surgeon, processing that emotionally, practically, and, and as you say, taking some time to process. Um, is there is there anyone either professionally or in your personal life that you know surgeons typically turn to in a scenario like that, maybe to deal with the emotional or psychological impact of having a patient, not to say turn on you, but change the dynamic of your physician patient relationship
2: like that? I think you have to go to your peers. I mean, going home and talking to your wife or loved one, that's great. They'll give you support, but you got to talk to someone who's been there and knows what it feels like because, you know, you feel betrayal, you feel anger, you feel malice um, and all these things. And many times you can be, I I thought I did a good job. Um, And so I think you just have to get a perspective of, you know, why did this happen? And, you know, I'm gonna step back and tell you a little story. So we as we are surgeons and medicine caring and providers. That's our business. The problem is, is none of us think of it as a business. We think of it as an advocation and a, a lifetime commitment. If you were a short, if you owned a short, a store, and you sold X, you know that part of your whatever profits or whatever your margin is, is you're setting aside because someone's going to come and do the slip and fall. We don't think like that as an expense of our business is malpractice claims frivolous or not. But in reality, the lawyers think of this as it's part of business and it's just a chunk out of out of your, your day. And in your you know final line audit, there's a person that's, malpractice female, whether they're real or they're not real.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting and quite ironic that the three of us are on this podcast talking about this, because if I remember correctly, if you were to average the last, I guess, 20 years or so, the worst states for malpractice are um, Florida for us here in Miami, Pennsylvania for you, Jim, and Illinois for, for JP, right? And so it brings up this issue that there is a lot of variability, but I think you're right, Jim, that the average neurosurgeon, I think the statistic is gets sued every two and a half years or something like that. Now, obviously some people uh, get sued a lot less than that. Uh, I've been very fortunate that I haven't been part of, of much of that. Um, but, you know, we are probably the most Litigated against per capita medical specialty even more than OB, right? I mean, I think that if you said the average neurosurgeon gets sued every two or three years, and the average pediatrician might get one lawsuit in their career, if that, it's a big deal. So why, Jim, tell us why that is? Are we doing something wrong? Are we arrogant? Is it because we have the deep pocket? Is it because the diseases we treat are horrible? Like, tell us a little bit about that in neurosurgery.
2: So it's funny. I will argue that. We are probably a little bit more arrogant than a pediatrician, but I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is is it's a you know, this is what it's taken me twenty years to step back and realize that this is all an economic issue. Not all, but a great majority of it. You know, why don't pediatricians get sued? Because the claims and the victories are very small. When you look at the cost of living when someone has a neurologic injury, the verdicts are extremely high. Again, I don't believe the American legal system is, well, you know, it's not an advocate for the patient where a third of the prize is going to go to the lawyer. I think that's the problem. And I think we need to create a system, in my view, would be where the patient benefits with the, the most. The lawyer gets paid for doing their work. But when you have a lawyer getting a $10 million prize for winning a verdict, I just don't think that's a really good way to help patients recover.
0: Yeah. So can I ask you about that? Um, so, you know, I guess Michigan state, the state of Michigan and university of Michigan experimented with those type of ideas, which is admitting fault early, um, having, uh, having big funds, I guess, for, for dealing with this defending lawsuits vigorously, uh, having payment, uh, programs available for people who are hurt. Like, what is your perspective on all these different models of how to make a more just uh, society, if you will, for people who are actually hurt, for for better or worse, whether it's someone's at fault or not, right? What, what do you think about that, Jim? Where are we headed with that?
2: So I actually am a big quality improvement person. And, and, we, we, and we can talk about that later at some point if you'd like. But I really think you got the, you know, the problem is, is you and I being neurosurgeons, pay the most for our malpractice so we had the most coverage um i don't know if i told you the story i was involved in a car accident where i was on a highway i got i stopped at a stopped at a light and someone fell asleep at the wheel and drove 60 miles per hour into my car it hit four other cars all the cars are told i'm sitting there oh it was it was a nice experience so long story short is i'm like i'm happy i'm alive my insurance company calls me up and the lady's like talking to me and i'm like what are you really telling me? I go, what is the question you want? And finally she goes, well, we just want to know if you're going to sue. And I go, why am I going to sue? I'm fine. I'm all right. You know, whatever. So then she goes next week later, I get sued. And I go, I get sued. So I called the lady back up and I'm like, why did I get sued? I go, I got hit by my car at full speed. My car was the, you know, the cue ball. And I went into another freaking car. And she looked at me and she goes, You have the greatest insurance coverage. They're always going to sue you. And I said to myself, that's the problem in neurosurgery. We have the greatest coverage. So we are the greatest, you know, target for the lawyers. And I'm going to throw this back to you, Mike. In Florida, correct me if I'm not wrong, but a lot of people go bare, meaning that they don't have malpractice just to avoid the economic advantages of being sued.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon to not have a deep pocket and there are rules about that. We obviously don't do that. University of Miami, unfortunately, we're a private institution, which is horrible because UF, uh, University of Florida and Tampa, USF, they're public institutions, so they're state employees and they're indemnified, right? Just like if you work at the VA hospital. It, it's a very interesting thing. And I'm, the strategy, I'm sure, in Philly and Chicago uh, are also interesting. I, my malpractice between California and here The premiums were a difference of fivefold or more, which is really shocking, right, if you think about it in terms of just from one state to another. Well, I mean,
1: I'm sitting here listening to these different strategies, and and if what you're saying, Dr. Harrop, is true, and it's just the financial incentive that's driving the majority of these lawsuits, I wonder what is there that we can do on an individual level besides these systemic changes to payment structures and the structure for legal recourse in the case that a patient does have an adverse event. Um, You know, aside from just improving the quality of our practice and improving the quality of our interactions with patients uh, on an individual basis, is there any recourse for the surgeon to protect themselves in these scenarios, or should we really just focus on systems level change? I mean, I think
2: we need to have system level changes, and, I, and I, I've said this before, is, you know, a medical disaster is equivalent to an airline crash. And in that, if you go and analyze and do what they call root cause analysis on a medical disaster, there's usually between 10 and 13 critical errors that happen on that patient's care. And so one of the things I think we need to do is be much better quality and patient advocates from not only our surgery but all the way up and down the system, because you all know this. I mean, there's many flaws where we could uh, help out pathways. And I spend a lot of time now trying to work with other teams, uh, nurses and uh, other members of the, the hospital team in order to make patient safety better, because very rarely does the surgeon do something horribly catastrophic on its own it's usually a patient has a misadventure you know they they had surgery they came in there was a, some problem they went to the mri they got over sedated their blood pressure dropped and they had a stroke in the mri there's so many areas that we can improve along that pathway
0: so so jim you know it, it's really interesting what you're bringing up and i think it's 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 such an important topic. And let me just put in a plug for the Washington Committee and Katie Rico because for that um, systemic change, if it's at a national level, certainly Washington Committee, through your support for the AANS, is delivering on that as much as possible every day through lobbying efforts and, and, lit- and, and legislation and, and whatnot. But I, I want to ask you something about trainees. So in most settings, trainees are very unlikely to be named uh, in a lawsuit or have to be deposed or testify, right? So how do you guys at Jefferson train your residents and fellows on how to avoid or manage, if you will, um, litigation, malpractice, and medical errors, if you will? I mean, I, it's sort of a threefold thing. How, how do you do that in a training program?
2: Well, I, see, I, I actually think our training program, again, probably because we're one of the highest payers of premiums that have a very litigious uh, city where we work in, is we're very in tune to uh, the legal problems and documentation, I think is the, one of the big things we can all do better on. Uh, there's a definite need when you and a patient talk to document what's going on, that you gave the patient all the options and that they chose X route versus Y route over Y. Um, and I think that's one of the things we do pretty well. Two is we talk to the patients. I mean, I, I routinely will always call a family member when, when an elderly patient or a patient who comes in who's confused. I always call the family person because you know, and Mike, you know this very well the history you get is completely wrong or different than probably reality. And so I think those little things is, you know, trying to understand documenting things because everyone when your lawsuit happens it's usually five years later and now no one remembers any everything so i i think a being very organized having a homogeneous approach to a problem and when an error happens look at it and figure out how you can do it and make it better so it doesn't happen again
1: All right. Well, Dr. Harrop, I think this conversation has been an excellent kickoff to our medicine and law series. Again, kind of as we stated at the beginning, easing into these intersecting professions still from a somewhat clinical perspective before we talk to the actual attorneys. uh, I think your perspective is invaluable considering the physician's take on what to do when you find yourself in this maybe unavoidable, but certainly unpleasant scenario of facing a malpractice suit. And in fact, I would point our listeners to an upcoming episode in the regular feed of the podcast where we talk with Dr. Harrop about complications and how to deal with them as a physician more from a personal or psychological perspective than today's conversation, thinking about approaching the malpractice realm of affairs. So Dr. Harrop, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us to kick off our series, Medicine and the Law. We'll be right back. back.